Hey everyone, it's Lainey, and I'm so excited that Charlie from Crimelines has agreed to host the podcast for me while I'm out on maternity leave, taking care of my little girl, Tilden. So I want to let you know first, before the episode gets started, where you can find Crimelines. Crimelines can be found on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok by searching for Crimelines True Crime. Trust me, Charlie's content is amazing, and it's one of the reasons why I asked her to host the podcast, because I'm such a huge fan of her show. Okay, enough of the business, on to the show. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Also, this episode contains graphic crimes against children, and I just want you to be prepared. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your guest host, Charlie, of the Crime Lines podcast. I'm sitting in for Lainey, who is on maternity leave. Slavery is a heinous crime against humanity, and history has made it no less so. When slavery was practiced in America, there were unscrupulous individuals who would kidnap freed blacks and sell them back into slavery as was the case of Solomon Northup. The most notorious of these was also a female serial killer. Okay, on to the show. The transatlantic slave trade officially ended on January 1st, 1808. Slaveholding existed until the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865, but slave trading was no longer allowed in the United States. Slave trading had existed for close to 350 years by the time it ended in America. According to the Charleston County Public Library, slave owners in Charleston had become gluttonous and obsessed with owning slaves, and so the federal government took steps to intervene and close out the trade. Unfortunately, because the transatlantic slave trade was closed, unscrupulous entrepreneurs still found a way to provide slaves for greedy slaveholders in the South. In what is termed the Reverse Underground Railroad, agents and conductors procured free blacks and sold them into slavery. Free black was a legal designation at the time, indicating both those who were formerly enslaved and those who had been born free. In some instances, these free blacks had bought their freedom, but were unfortunately sold back into slavery. Many of these individuals were sold to property owners along the Gulf Coast to cut sugarcane and pick cotton. Philadelphia was the northernmost stop on the Reverse Underground Railroad because there were so many free blacks in the city. Philadelphia was also close to the Mason-Dixon line. The men and women who worked the Reverse Underground Railroad remain nameless to this day due to indifference as well as bribes paid to officials. The taking of slaves or freed men and women and selling them to slave owners was also known as man-stealing. During man-stealing, notices would be published that a slave had run off, when in actuality they had been sold farther south. 
You may be familiar with the saying, sell you down the river, and this is where the saying originated. The term has come to mean a betrayal, but its origins are far darker in meaning. The original saying was frequently used as a threat to family members who would be separated if one was sold down the river. In the early 1800s, there was a young slave, Madison, who had been sold to a slave trader. In his account, he discusses Mr. X and the way he would obtain slaves by being coaxed by Madison, who would then regale the slaves with stories about all Mr. X could give them and do for them. If the slaves would not go with Madison, Mr. X would kidnap them outright. While giving his story for a newspaper, Madison refused in any way to reveal the true identity of Mr. X since he was thought to be a legitimate slave trader. In Maryland, which was the location of our female serial killer, Mr. X purchased two slaves from a buyer, but secretly had Madison kidnap four others from the same buyer. Madison convinced the four slaves that Mr. X was a gentleman who was going to take them to a free state and release them. According to Dr. Richard Bell, a historian at the University of Maryland, Philadelphia was the city of black freedom, but it was also the most dangerous city in America for freed black men and women. Author of the book Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery, and their astonishing odyssey home, Dr. Bell claims that when kidnappers came into Philadelphia from nearby states with the intention of kidnapping freed men, many white Philadelphians would assist these people. Unfortunately, another group of people charged with protecting citizens were members of the New York Police Department. Captain Isaiah Rinders was a U.S. Marshal who came back to his home state of New York around 1837. Captain Rinders immediately began to target black New Yorkers who made it to New York for freedom. Captain Rinders and his officers Tobias Boudinot and Daniel D. Nash patrolled the streets of New York, terrorizing freeborn blacks and newly freed slaves alike. Through Captain Rinder's influence, the New York City Police Department soon became an extension of the Southern Slave Patrols. They rounded up black men and women and transported them south as fugitives to collect on the reward or to outright sell the slaves. It's important to note that the police of New York City in the 1800s bears little to no resemblance to the modern-day police of New York City. There were only approximately 80 constables and marshals for a city approaching 300,000 people. The system at the time essentially led itself into corruption, particularly the fact that members of the police department were paid based on the number of arrests they made. Just as there were evil men afoot to round up slaves, there were also many activists who tried to protect the black men and women of New York City. David Ruggles, an activist and journalist, worked around the clock with Horace Dresser, Arthur Tappan, and Charles Ray to try to protect citizens of New York from Captain Rinder and his crew. In the 1850s, the Metropolitan Police Force was formed by anti-Irish politicians. 
These two police forces clashed in the streets as much as the criminals they were trying to arrest. However, this new force was just as pro-slavery as the previous one, and until the Civil War ended, no black was safe on the streets of New York City. Although much has changed about police forces across the country, there is still a great deal of change needed. Further south, on the boundary line between Maryland and Delaware, a tavern was operated by Patty Cannon, who was also known as Martha or Lucretia. According to the narrative and confessions of Lucretia P. Cannon, Patty Cannon was from Montreal, Canada. Her father, L.P. Hanley, was the disowned son of an English nobleman. L.P. was disowned after he took up drinking and secretly married a sex worker. The couple moved to Montreal since they couldn't find work or anything else in England. They started a smuggling operation between Montreal, Vermont, and New York. The couple seemed respectable from the outside until the day one of L.P.'s acquaintances found them and threatened to reveal their secret to his family back home. L.P. took matters into his own hands and took an axe to his acquaintance's head. He split the man's head but was caught before he could escape. He was hanged not long after. Mrs. Hanley went back to her old ways and opened a, quote, house of entertainment for persons traveling for pleasure. She taught her daughters the art of deception and married them to seemingly respectable men as soon as she could. Patty was her youngest daughter. In 1802, when she was 16 years old, Jesse Cannon, a wheelwright from Delaware, visited the North Country. He fell ill and was nursed back to health by Mrs. Hanley, who had discovered his wealth. Mrs. Hanley encouraged the blossoming romance, and soon Jesse and Patty had married and moved to Delaware. They settled on the Nanticoke River and soon had two children. Within three years of their marriage, Jesse died. Some believed he had died of a broken heart, that his marriage was that unpleasant. Patty soon went wild. She became the leader of a gang of ruffians, and the gang became robbers. Years after she was widowed, one of her teenage daughters married a man named Joe Johnson. This was the daughter's second marriage, according to the news accounts of the time. Her daughter's first husband had been found guilty of the murder of a slave trader. Patty and Joe eventually opened a tavern together called Joe Johnson's Tavern. Legend has it that her tavern literally straddled both state lines, so if authorities entered the tavern, she was able to walk a few feet into a different jurisdiction. Patty's main method of thievery involved opening her home to slave dealers. She was known for her hospitality and rarely charged anyone for their stay at her home. It was said that Patty was an attractive woman, but rather large, like a man. In fact, one of her gang members later reported that she would often put on men's clothing and go with the gang during their criminal activities. In one case, a man was heading to New York and stopped at Patty's place to rest his horse and to eat. Patty met the man outside, somehow determined he had a great deal of money with him, 
and then led him to sit at a table and wait for his food. However, the table where she sat him was next to a window, and one of her colleagues shot the man through the window, and Patty robbed the dead man's corpse. The gang placed the man's body in a chest and buried it on Patty's property. In another incident, outlined in a pamphlet about her crimes, two slave traders called for dinner, and she again somehow discovered they had a great deal of cash on them. The two men were going to eat and move on, but Patty was so engaging and the wine was flowing liberally that they ended up staying until dark. Once it was nighttime, the men left and headed to their destination, 15 miles away at the Cannon Ferry. Patty, dressed in men's clothing, and her gang crossed the river before the ferry and were able to get ahead of the two men on the roadway. The gang waited for the men to top the crest of a sandy hill, at which point they fired upon them, mortally wounding one of the men and injuring another. The victim's horses bolted away from the robbers and their owners. One of the men in the gang, identified only as Griffin, was found guilty of a murder in Cambridge, Maryland. On the gallows, he stated he was not guilty of the murder he was being hanged for, but he did have much to confess and deserved to die. He said he could not bear the thought of arriving before God in heaven without having made a full confession to the world. Griffin said he was born in Maine, and around 17 years old, he became struck by wanderlust. He wandered around the New Republic, meeting all types of idle and dissipated company, until he became one of the most idle and dissolute wretches in existence. In Philadelphia, Griffin met up with another man named Hunt, who became his friend and accomplice. They preyed on intoxicated people who they lured into dark alleys before robbing them. During one such event, they attempted to rob a man, but he fell to his feet unharmed. Griffin pulled out a long knife he always carried and stabbed the man in the back. They robbed the dead man and ran. The next morning, news of the murder was posted all over Philadelphia, so Griffin fled. He then went to Baltimore and played the part of a gentleman. In Baltimore, he met a young lady by the name of Elizabeth Morton, who came from a respectable family. He began courting her, and she initially received him warmly. Before long, however, she became aware that he was not who he said he was and turned cold towards him. Griffin asked her to elope, to which she refused. Angered, he was determined to ruin her and asked her to go on a ride with him. He took her to a house of ill repute where he was determined to, quote, ruin her further by having his way with her. He told her of his intentions and said if she would marry him before returning to her father's house, he would desist. Elizabeth refused, saying she would rather die than marry him after his treatment of her. She tried to scream for help, but he found a towel and tried to shove it into her mouth. Unsuccessful, he choked her into unconsciousness and raped her. When he finished, he realized she would point the finger at him, 
So he again strangled her, this time not stopping until she was dead. He left her there and fled to Baltimore, intending to go to New Orleans. However, on his way south, he ran into Patty Cannon and her gang and found a new place to try out his thievery and murderous skills. He said he was one of the four who assisted Patty when she waylaid the slave dealers and murdered one of them. After he joined the gang, two others joined whose names were Johnson and Bowen. They then employed a very smart freed slave named Ransom, who would entice free blacks in Philadelphia to board a ship, which would go to Patty Cannon's headquarters. These freed blacks would then be forced to board another ship, where the hatches were closed and the captives were chained. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ plus matters, grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. Patty Cannon had another person on her payroll, someone referred to as an old wench, who kept a house by the shipyard. She would roam about the city and entice young Black people back to her house free of charge. Ransom would visit there and, under various pretenses, manage to load the ship through the night until, by morning, it was full of kidnapped free Blacks. During the day, if any of these individuals were found to be ill or too old to be sold, they were tossed overboard. They were unloaded at Patty Cannon's, where she placed them in her secret cave. One woman arrived one day with a small child around five years of age. This child had terrible fits and happened to burst into one of these fits in Patty's hearing. Patty flew into a rage and lunged at the child tearing at their clothes and beating them at the same time. When the child did not stop, Patty took the child 
and thrust their face into the fire, then threw the child's remains into the cave. Patty also allegedly murdered a 15-year-old black child who worked in her household. He was pretty much in the dark about all the criminal activities that had occurred in and around the home, until he heard about the burning of the little child. After this, he told others that he was going to run and tell someone about this murder. He took off running, and Patty saw him a distance out from the house. Not knowing his intention, but still believing something was wrong, she had one of her lackeys run after him. The man caught him before he could tell anyone anything, but the boy did tell this man that he would run away again to tell what he knew of the small child's murder. Once back at Patty's, the teen defiantly told her the same thing. He would run again and reveal the murder. Patty flew into one of her well-known rages and beat him with a large fire shovel. She threw him into the cave in her basement, where he sat without food for the next few days. When Patty went to check on him, she took him some water and some cold food, which he wolfed down. After he finished the meal, Patty asked him again if he still intended to reveal her secrets, and he said yes. She spied a large rock and beat him to death with it. Not long after this, Patty received news that her mother had died. She had also found out that her brother James had been hanged as a horse thief in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. James had been part of his own gang, but this gang focused on counterfeiting and stealing horses. There were allegedly 100 men in this gang that had a line stretching from Kingston to Toronto, Detroit, New York, and Philadelphia. A member of the gang would steal a horse, then by night, they would run the horse to the next station. They would leave the horse there or exchange it for another horse, then return home so as to not arouse suspicion of their absence. Patty's brother decided to steal an expensive horse belonging to a British officer. However, one of the officer's servants heard the noise and woke the officer up. Several men set out after James, and he was captured less than 10 miles from where he had taken the horse. James was tried before a magistrate and thrown in jail, awaiting trial in the king's court. He was sentenced to death by hanging and was hanged late in 1828. Patty became more insufferable and seemed to take no pleasure in anything but her bloodthirsty nature. However, the end of her reign of terror was at hand. Her last murder was that of a traveler who was known to have stayed at her home. After he was not seen for a week or so, neighbors became suspicious and went to her property to search it. One of the men said he was building a house and wanted to make a sketch of her house. Patty showed them all through her home except for the cellar. This, of course, aroused their suspicions even more, so when she left the room for a minute, they asked one of her servants what was in the cellar. The servant said she dared not tell or Patty would kill her. They promised to protect her, and she said there were terrible things in the cellar. But then Patty came in the room again. The next day, 
The neighbors went to the sheriff and reported their fears. A warrant was issued, and the sheriff and about a dozen men went to her house to arrest her. Patty became very belligerent, but seeing all the men surrounding her home, she gave up. One member of her gang promised to testify against her and led searchers to several graves. Patty was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Three weeks before she was to be executed, Patty obtained poison and took it. While the poison took its toll on Patty, she screamed and writhed in agony. She suddenly became calm and asked for a priest wishing to confess. When the priest arrived, she told him she had killed 11 people with her own hands and helped kill a dozen others. She also admitted she had killed one of her children at three days old and had poisoned her husband. She died a short while later. Other newspaper articles tell of a tenant on Patty's land who was plowing one day and hit a soft spot. Upon examination, he found a chest painted blue, which contained bones. Patty Cannon has not been forgotten, but in the 1970s and 1980s, one family brought her into headlines in a surprising way. They claimed her ghost was haunting their house, which had been Patty's house. The Good family purchased Patty Cannon's home around 1977, the same year in which Jay Anson published his blockbuster hit, The Amityville Horror. James and Robin Good lived in the home with their three children. James said he was psychic enough to know the house was haunted, and Robin said when she first entered the home, she could sense evil. Robin said she could hear conversations at night, a baby crying, and chains rattling. James Good had a local spiritualist, only identified as Mary Smith, come to the house. He said she would not go into the home because of the evilness. James said they went to a neighbor's home and discussed it with them. Mary Smith told him that there was treasure buried in the house and that about 600 to 700 people had been killed there. Allegedly, she asked him, have you tried an exorcist? James Good told reporters in 1980 that he had more bizarre experiences than his wife, and his were similar to the Amityville horror. He also claimed to have invited a minister to the home to clear it, but the minister, who has been unnamed, canceled at the last minute. James Good said he and his sons had, quote, experienced the presence of spirits and a black hairy creature with red eyes that lives in a second-floor bedroom closet that has been nailed shut, end quote. The description of the creature with red eyes sounds remarkably like Jay Anson's description of Jody the Pig in Amityville Horror. James Good and his wife finally sold the house after having lived there for a few years and having given tours through the home. Research done in 1968 showed that the home James Good and his family lived in nearly a decade later was not actually the Patty Cannon home. The original home had been torn down in 1948 and a new home built on the site. These days, Patty Cannon lives on, at least in Maryland and Delaware. In front of the house where the goods used to live, 
there is a sign that reads, Nearby stood Patty Cannon's house at Johnson Crossroads, where the noted kidnapping group had headquarters, as described in George Alfred Townsend's novel, The Entailed Hat. The house borders on Caroline and Dorchester counties and the state of Delaware. Though this sign is in front of the house the goods lived in, it was not Patty's home. In fact, her actual home was closer to Seaford, Delaware. For years, a skull purported to be Patty's was displayed each Halloween at the Dover Public Library. The skull has been loaned to the Smithsonian. While at the library, the skull was wrapped in red velvet and kept in a wig box. Much of the information about Patty Cannon comes from the Delaware Gazette, as well as Niles Weekly, which is a weekly magazine of Maryland. Another source of information about Patty Cannon and her escapades is the narrative and confessions of Lucretia P. Cannon by Clinton Jackson and Erastus E. Barclay, written in 1841, more than a decade after Patty Cannon died. The legend of Patty Cannon remains somewhat shrouded in mystery. Over the years, Patty has been compared to Belle Guinness, another female serial killer active in Illinois and Indiana between 1884 and 1908. Another newspaper from the 1880s called Patty the Bloody Bender Prototype. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, My one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find True Crime Fan Club on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram is at True Crime Fan Club Pod, And of course, the website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode suggestion, send us an email at tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John. Content editing was by Brittany Martinez.